Oh my god, we should make a podcast. Oh yeah, right. That's what we're here for. Um, right. I'll I'll forego the coffee. I think I'm good. <laughs> All right, that's fair. We can take a break and make more at some point after my episode. Murmur. 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 I'm almost always uh, simultaneously surprised and not surprised by what I hear in our cold opens. <laughs> it's like yes. shit that I forgot, for, for, forgot, forgot that we even said or did because it's so incidental at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh yeah, oh god. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Welcome to 2019 with Good Witches, Bad Bitches. We stumbled our way into the new year. <laughs> Deanna's trying to get every last, every last drop, drop of, of coffee. Of this dirty chai. <laughs> For a dirty woman. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean dirty because I haven't showered, not in a sexual way. But maybe. I mean, you know. If you want. Yeah. No judgment. Happy New Year, Hannah. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) And it really is a new year. Uh, We haven't done this in a little while. Nope. Rusty as fuck. Um, Because you went out of town, then Mm -hmm. I went out of town, and we recorded some episodes ahead of time, but... Yeah, our last episode was day after uh, Christmas, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, or before? No, it was after. No. Yeah, the twenty sixth. Yeah. So, uh, if you've been hankering for some ladies, welcome back to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're excited to be back. Yeah, I've needed this. Oh yeah, I was so excited to like research and get back into it, and yeah, it's been nice <clears throat> to get back into a. A little bit of a routine. Also, just because the research period is so fun, I forget how how fun it is to just like sit there and read fifteen articles about somebody. Oh yeah, and a because you're you're getting an individual's take on the person that you're reading, so you get to see all of these different perspectives mm-hmm. about the the person you've chosen. Mm-hmm. But also just because so many of them have different info from each other. You read yeah, because of the different, different and... interpretations necessary. Especially if you do someone who is from a further back period in history, there's there's always somebody's personal lens and bias. Yeah. When they talk about them, yeah. which you know is cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So, I was uh, I was pleased to get back into that. Although it took me it took me longer than it normally does. I think because I just fell into it so deeply. You fell into a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of forgot to look at the time. That's kind of awesome, though. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to share her. But this week we're talking about your lady. Yep. Before we do that, though, can I <clears throat> tell you a little something that happened at the beginning of the year? Sure. Um, <laughs> and it's an article that I found. Actually, the the thing it's about may not have happened at the beginning of the year, but the article came out just a couple days ago. Okay. Um, and this article I am reading is, is a CNN article, but it was in the Atlantic and a bunch of other places. And the headline is rare blue pigment found in medieval woman's teeth. What? Thus rewriting history. Wait. So. 
Yeah. I was like, oh my God, what does this even mean? So it goes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Shutting up. Yeah. Uh, the discovery <laughs> of a rare, expensive blue pigment in the dental plaque of a medieval woman's skeleton is shedding light on a hidden chapter of history, according to a study published Wednesday in the journal Science Advances. Researchers oh studied burial remains from a, from a medieval cemetery connected with a woman's monastery in Germany. Which, Whoa. A, I didn't know that was a thing. A woman's monastery? I just kind of thought there were, like... Nunneries. Convents, yeah, nunneries, and that's it. But it, this was a woman's monastery in Germany where they believe a women's community existed as early as the 10th century. Whoa. There are that, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> dude. So there are a few records of the monastery itself because it was destroyed in a fire after a series of nearby battles during the 14th century. Jesus. But written records there date to 1244. Wow. The researchers were studying a skeleton of a woman who was estimated to be between 45 and 60 years old when she died, sometime between 997 and 1162. Um, the skeleton itself was unremarkable with no visible signs of trauma or infection, but blue flecks were embedded in her teeth. Embedded? Mm-hmm. Okay. Multiple spectrographic analyses revealed the blue pigment to be ultramarine, a rare pigment made from crushed lapis lazuli stones. Uh-huh. Blah. That's a hard word. Um, it was as, as expensive as gold at the time, mined from a single region in Afghanistan and the ultimate luxury trade good back then. But how did you embed it in your teeth? So um, <laughs> ultramarine and gold leaf would have been used to create illustrated, illuminated manuscripts and luxury books in monasteries, mostly for other religious institutions and the nobility. Only the most skilled artists were allowed to use them because of the cost. Um, so from my understanding, and I'm sure they'll say this in this article, but like only priests were allowed to create these books. Yeah, well, because the only books like being copied at the time were basically religious texts. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Um, so, mostly. Yeah. So the dis- that the discovery was made in a rural German monastery is no surprise. Books were being produced during this time in monasteries across the country, but women were not known to be the illustrators of such prized creations. What? Only scribes and painters of exceptional skill could uh, would be entrusted with its use. In fact, the writers and illustrators often didn't sign their work as a gesture of humility. And if women were those writers and artists, the practice would, this practice would effectively erase them from history. Um, monks were often assumed to be scribes over nuns. The study says that even books found in the libraries of women's monasteries have fewer than 15% of female names on them. And before the 12th century, that number drops to fewer than 1%. But a few rare surviving works from as early as the 8th century reveal that women were scribes. And so this is basically proof because she had the pigment in her. Like if you're licking your paintbrush, I assume, or like anything like that, then um, the fact that she has this crazy like pigment in her teeth means she was around it all the time yeah so based on the distribution of the pigment in her mouth we concluded that the most likely scenario was that she was herself painting with the pigment and licking the end of the brush while painting wow in fact given the destruction at the site due to the fire this woman's skeleton may be the only record of the activity at the monastery um it goes on for a little bit but yeah i mean basically it's been assumed up until she was discovered that monks were the only ones who were doing that, mm-hmm. who were, you know, creating texts and, and illustrations and making them all pretty. And 
holy shit hello women were also doing it we just we just didn't know because nobody said anything wow and they didn't sign their names and she had aquamarine like not aquamarine ultramarine ultramarine embedded in her embedded in her tea yeah like this was her day-to-day so much so that it was just like caked into her well obviously I, i assume like when she died she probably had some like inner mouth and maybe when she decomposed it sort of like yep did you like my sound effect i did i appreciated it very that much was cool yeah so anyway that was that's happy new year women were scribes way back when in the 10th century mm-hmm. and now we know what yeah so that's my piece well it's just crazy <laughs> you and i are just so like brain linked sometimes it's weird because you picked somebody who kind of like this, it's this sort is of good. it sort of uh, is, uh, fits the mold. It, well, not sort of. It's just it's a it's a good introduction. All right, you want to tell me about her? Yes, I do. <laughs> What's up, witches? We have some really exciting news. We have just launched our Patreon. Yay! Woohoo! Something we've been trying to do for a while. Yes, and we finally gotten there. Yes, and if you are not familiar with Patreon, it is basically a platform that helps content creators like us us, make a little bit of money to help with costs associated with creating that content right you can find us at patreon.com slash gwbb podcast and we'll have the link in our show notes yes at the moment we have a very basic tiered system you get to be a patron of this show and you can opt in so whether or not you want to be a good witch patron or a bad bitch patron it's the same if you do a minimum donation of three dollars or more per month and uh the first 10 people of each will get a free pin corresponding corresponding to whichever option you chose hell yeah and you'll get a shout out on the podcast as a good witch or a bad bitch whichever one you choose to be which is pretty fucking rad yeah we're pretty excited about that and we really appreciate all of the support that you guys have given us thus far and that you'll continue to give us hopefully fingers crossed and we look forward to seeing you in our patriosphere hell yeah matriosphere on patreon (laughs) Yeah. yeah Let's go with it. Cool. Cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We love you. Hello to our good witch and bad bitch listeners. We have more patrons on our Patreon that we want to give a special shout out to because they are beautiful and wonderful and they are helping us keep our lights on. And they're good witches and bad bitches. Yep. We have have both good witches and a single bad bitch, I think, to announce mm-hmm. today. Yeah, man. Um, more people who are doing good for their communities and sport- supporting creators such as ourselves in doing things that make us and them happy. Hopefully, you guys all get a lot of joy out of this. Anyway, uh, Hannah, do you want to get it. us started with our bad bitch new patron? Our bad bitch of the week is... <laughs> Whitley. Yay, Whitley. Yay, Whitley. Thank you. Thank you for being a bad bitch and supporting other bad bitches. You are seriously a bad bitch. Seriously a bad bitch. Uh. And beautifully, we have two new Good Witch patrons. Two. (gasps) Two. Two of them. And they're very special, near and dear to my heart. Uh, We have Good Witch Laura Y., who is a new patron. Thank you, Laura. We love you. Hell yeah, Laura. She also made us that beautiful pillow that <gasps> that we uh, posted on our Instagram 
the crocheted embroidered. one or embroidered yeah. oh my god that pillow was so cool so laura is the goodest witch and and is really a huge supporter of this podcast we also have good witch Raina t Woo-hoo! yeah Raina. yeah Raina. if you'll recall she was a guest host on this podcast and also <laughs> my mother so thanks mom <laughs> thanks mom oh yeah that was episode 30 if you would like to uh take a listen about bernice abbott photographer of new york it was great hell Raina yes. is a super good witch thank you Raina. thanks Raina. we love you uh all right i think that wrap about wraps that up that wraps that up for this week those are our special good witches and bad bitch of the week and we will hopefully have more for you soon thank you very much love you but i'm going to tell you today about the first woman in england to make a living as a writer oh uh uh-huh and her name's afra ben i don't know if you've heard of her Mm -mm. okay yay because i learned a little bit about her like i said in college um, but it was really cool, like delving deeper into like her actual biography instead of just like a footnote um, or what have you. Yeah, man. But anyway, let it's... us let us begin. Okay. Um, my hi, Ben. Um, my sources this week are Smithsonian Mag, uh, PoetryFoundation.org, WritersInspire.org, and ThoughtCo.com. Let's go. Let's go. Afra Ben was a playwright, poet, and translator. She was a woman in a world of men, a staunch royalist, a spy, and a scarlet woman condemned for loose morals. She was also the first woman in England to identify herself as a professional writer. She wrote to the occasion, and she wrote to make money. There has been a consistent tendency to see Afra Ben as a personal phenomenon rather than as the author of a series of works that are interesting in their own right. It's Mm. important to state at the start that even now, we know almost nothing for certain about Afroben's life. That's so interesting. Like the the idea that she's only interesting because she's a female writer, but that her works don't necessarily stand up. But they do. But they do. And people tend to assume. They just tend to, to neglect that aspect. Yeah. Because <laughs> as we will learn, she was like incredibly famous in her time and like really well known and, so and well produced. And anyway, so. As a woman, she was excluded from the sorts of institutions from which historians usually glean their records, such as Oxford and Cambridge, the Inns of Court, or the Middle Temple. If she had been an aristocrat, there might have been records surviving at her country uh, country seat. If she'd been a religious nonconformist, she might have recorded her thoughts and ideas about her inner life in a spiritual journal or diary, as so many women did. But as neither a man, nor an aristocrat, nor a nonconformist, she proves peculiarly resistant to biographical recovery. Oh, man. What year did you say? I haven't. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No one really knows her birth name or exactly when she was born. Her parentage has been traced to Wye, which is in the very southeastern part of England, like it's southeast even of London. Okay. Um, And it's estimated she was born around 1640. Oh, okay. And perhaps on December 14th. Huh. So... There are a couple theories about her parentage. One version of her life suggests that her parents were a barber named John Amos and his wife, Amy. Another speculation was that she was the child of a couple whose last name was Cooper. Uh, However, uh, there's an essay that was written in 1696 um, that was affixed to a collection. It maintains that she was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. John Johnson. (laughs) 
of nearby Canterbury. Oh my God. Johnson was a gentleman related to Francis, Lord Willoughby, who appointed him lieutenant, I guess I'll say it the British way, oh general uh, of Surin- Suriname, Suriname, Suriname. Okay. I have no idea. Um, for which Willoughby was the royal patentee. Whether Afra was Johnson's natural child or fostered by him is not known. But what has been established with reasonable certainty was that in 1663, so when she was like 23, roughly, twenty early 20s, Afra accompanied Johnson, his wife, and a young boy mentioned as Ben's brother on a voyage to take up residence in the West Indies. Johnson died on the way, and the oh. mother and two children lived for several months in Suriname, Suriname, which is a country in between Guinea and French New Guinea in South America. It's Whoa. like northern South America. Okay. God. Crazy. Especially in like the 1600s. It was like a Dutch Yeah, why? Like you just, they were just colonizing? Well, it said that he got a patent. Oh, um, I missed So that. they lived there for several months. Um, this period would end up having lasting effects on Ben's life. And do 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 the facts about her life after her return to England in 1664 are also unclear. She's known to have met and taken the name of a man who considered to be her husband, who was perhaps a Dutch merchant, maybe, <laughs> Possibly. whose name was either Ben Bean, ben, like B-E-N, B-E-A-N-E, <coughs> Ben, B-E-N-E, or Ben, B-E-H-N, which is how her name is spelled, Afro-Ben. A-P-H-R-A-B-E-H-N. Afro-Ben. Whatever the true circumstances, from that time on, she was known publicly as Mrs. Ben. (laughs) All right. The name she later used for professional writing. Her husband died before the end of 1665, so she was married for like a year maybe. Jesus. Leaving Afro without a means of income. Oh, fuck. So she became a spy. Oh, yeah. As you do. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike her early life, Ben's short time as a spy is very well documented. <laughs> Which is like the exact opposite of what you want when you're a spy. No, but it was like a time when they they super kept track of it because of all of the the crazy um, espionage going on. They had to keep track of it somehow. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Uh-huh. That's fair. She was uh, named Agent 160. Oh, my God. So what? Agent 160 received her first assignment in 1666. Oh, my God. Wait. She was called Agent 160? Yeah. And uh, she was a newly minted <laughs> spy for the English government, also known as Astria. Oh. Was her, like, spy name. <laughs> my God. She had a simple task, which was to find a soldier named William Scott in the Netherlands, which was enemy territory at the time, and convince, convince him to turn spy for Charles II. Oh. She had 50 pounds with which to do so, which I guess I would think back in the 1660s was quite a bit of money. Must have been. Enough. She was employed by the crown and sent to Antwerp in July. Throughout her life, she was a loyal Tory and devoted to the Stuart family. Oh. She was likely employed as a spy due to her former connection with the aforementioned William Scott, who uh, was a double agent for the Dutch and English. So... She was supposed to, he was a double agent for the Dutch and the English, and she was supposed to go over there to try and get him to just be a spy for the English. Ooh. I guess. That makes sense. She already sense. had a connection to him. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, da, da, da. While in Antwerp, she also worked on gathering intelligence about possible Dutch military threats and English expatriates during the Second Dutch War. Ooh. However, like most employees of the Crown, because the crown was broke as fuck. <laughs> she couldn't get paid. 
Oh, God damn it. After that 50 pounds, she was like, hey, I need more money. And they were like, sorry, can't help you. Don't work on contract, guys. <laughs> right. Between the cost of travel, the unfavorable exchange rate between the pound and the gilder and her inexperience, she quickly ran out of money. <laughs> God damn the gig economy. Uh, no amount of pleading could induce the English government already flirting with bankruptcy to give her any more. So she returned to London penniless, indebted, and promptly wound up in a debtor's prison. Oh, my God. Which is like you go to work for your government. And, and then, then you, you come back because they can't pay you. And they're like, and we're also going to throw you in jail on top of it. That is so fucked. Because we couldn't pay you, so you have no money. Oh, my God. That just makes me so mad. <laughs> and she didn't even, like, finish her mission. She couldn't. She was just, she got there and was like, all right, I got to come back. Got to turn around. And they're like, we can't give you money for the journey back. And she's like, okay. So I think she had to borrow money to get wow. back. And that's the debt that put her in debtor's prison. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> all right. Um, the circumstances, I think, of her getting out of prison or nobody fucking knows, uh, like, because you don't know anything about her. Yeah. Um, but she turned to an equally unlikely profession to save herself from debt. Writing. Ah, <laughs> indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also like to note that while there were plenty of women writing at that time, uh, Catherine Phillips, Duchess of Newcastle are two examples. But most women came from aristocratic backgrounds and none were writing as a means of income. Right. They were just doing it for fun. I think the very first... Um, alternate reality sci-fi story was written around this time by a woman um she was a duchess i can't remember her name but like she was you know she was an aristocrat and so she was able to do that but but after ben do do? on the other hand was like i'm gonna do this for money that's crazy which of course you could get sponsored by an aristocrat at the time okay so anyway continue the social world that allowed a woman to be first a spy, then a financially successful playwright and poet was one of enormous upheaval. Uh, I just want to jump for a little background for context. Yeah. Because um, I don't know how many people maybe do or don't know. I need context. Charles II came to power in 1660 after England spent 11 years without a king. Oh. During that period, Oliver Cromwell and others led a series of Republican governments which promoted Puritan moral standards. Oh, yeah. Charles's reign ushered in the Restoration, which continued under his successor and brother James II until 1688, when it ended abruptly with an armed overthrow. Uh, despite the political turmoil that ensued, England ended up going to war with the Netherlands in the Third Dutch War in 1672. Both countries were filled with spies on the lookout for plots to overthrow Charles, because um, he like grew up in France, Charles. Um, okay. Which is why the Restoration sensibilities were very libertine. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Restoration was also a heady period. <laughs> ha! The Restoration was also a heady period of libertinism and pleasurable pursuits. Ooh. In 1660, theaters reopened after years of being closed down by Cromwell because Puritans, for Fucking some Puritans. reason, don't like theater or art or books or education. Yeah. Hey, no. fundamentalist people, let's uh, not. <laughs> Uh, and as soon as the theaters opened, writers and audience like audiences immediately flocked to go see shows because they were starved for <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. Um, I'd also just like to quickly note for anybody who doesn't know, this was the first period, at least in um, the Western world, that women were allowed to perform on stage. Oh, really? It's the stage beauty is set 
in the oh. restoration. So up until this time, all theater, male and female roles were played by men. And during the restoration, it was the first time women in England were allowed to perform on stage because it was seen as like a um, tawdry affair. Yeah. Yeah. Like scene or was, something. Yeah. Who knows? God damn. Um, let's see. The stereotyped image of restoration comedy, so the types of shows put on, they were witty, urbane, London-based, uh, probably containing illicit sex, which was a form of comedy which started with the arrival of Charles II, a witty, urbane king dedicated to illicit sex. Hey! <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so it was the perfect environment for a woman like Afro Ben, and she quickly made a name for herself. In, uh, Good for her. Yeah. In 1670, her first play was produced in London. It was called The Forced Marriage. Oh, and it tells the story of a heroine ordered to marry someone she doesn't love. Oh, boy. After a series of twists and turns, brushes with infidelity, a faked death, several sword fights, all the characters end up with the people they love. She wrote in the body mode of the Restoration, making frequent re- references to sex and both male and female pleasure. All right. Mm-hmm. Take, for example, and please give me some like leeway on this, the innuendo-laden speech given by one of the women in the forced marriage. Quote, with more facility than when the dart armed with resistless fire first seized my heart, t'was long then ere the boy could entrance get and make his little victory complete. And now he has got the knack on it. Tis with ease he domineers and enters when he please. Which I don't think is <laughs> talking about sex, but it is. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, similar double entendres occur throughout her plays, and her stories of love and lust were naturally wildly popular with Restoration audiences. In fact, she was second only to the poet laureate John Dryden in the number of works produced at the time. And his is a name I know-ish, yeah, but I too, don't but I didn't tell you. know anything about him. But, but he's yeah. a name you know. Yeah. Versus her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. She even earned the patronage of the Duke of Buckingham and James II, who was the king after Charles. Okay. Um, but that didn't change the fact that Ben was a woman in a man's world. Da-da-da. Uh, uh, Aren't we all? Hey, still, imagine. <laughs> Fucking 400 years later. Yep. Um, her plays reveal her talent for clever dialogue, plotting, and characterization that rivals her male contemporaries. Comedy was her strength, but her dramas show a keen understanding of human nature and a flair for language, which was likely the result of her worldliness. Her plays frequently humanize sex workers, older women, and widows. Damn. Which was not common. No. Uh, Though she was a conservative Tory, uh, she questioned their treatment of women. This is most obvious in her portrayal of flawed heroes whose political honor is at odds with their dishonorable conduct to the women that are vulnerable to their sexual mistreatment. Wow. It's, she's a very complicated woman, it seems like. Yeah. And really hard to pin down. Yeah. Because you can only make so many inferences from writing, you know? Like, you can yeah. and you can't, because also she was a spy. So she had to figure out how to put a mask on and and, you know... Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Naturally, despite her success, many people were uh, outraged by her "quote unquote" lack of femininity. Good God! Well, it's oh, because she always. was a woman writing about being a woman versus a man writing about being a woman. 
So she had some things to say about it, I am she sure. She competed on equal terms with men and never concealed her authorship, which is something a lot of female writers did and still do. Yeah. J.K. Rowling used a, a pen name that hid her gender because even her publishers were like, if they see, like, boys are less likely to read a book by a woman. By a woman. Well, parents are less likely to pick up books by women for their boys. But she never concealed the fact that she was a woman, ever. So she was that. constantly attacked for it. Um, of course. Yeah. Uh, but when attacked, she defended herself with counterattacks. After one of her plays, The Dutch Lover, failed, she blamed the prejudice against women's work. As a woman, she had suddenly become a competitor rather than just a novelty. That's what they didn't like. It's like, oh, it's the, it's the female author. But then she was being produced pretty much more than any other male author. Yeah. And they're like, hey, but you're only producing her because she's a woman. And she's like, fuck you. <laughs> no, I'm not. What was that thing you sent you showed me earlier? Go fuck yourself. Fuck me yourself, you coward. <laughs> yes. That's Afro Ben. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so perfect. The undes- uh, this undeserving failure inspired her to add a feminist viewed with our lens yeah. response to her play Epistle to the Reader. In it, she argued that while women should be allowed equal opportunity for learning, it wasn't necessary for composing entertaining comedy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like, wait, so what is she saying? She's, She's saying, saying women should be allowed equal access to education, but you don't need an education to be a fucking funny writer. All right. All right. Um, these two ideas were unheard of in the Restoration Theater, both that women should be educated, but also that they could be funny. <laughs> oh and God. therefore, they were quite radical. Even more radical. <laughs> you know what's sad is the concept, the idea that women can be funny is still radical uh-huh. to, to so many people. The number of, of treatises you see on why women aren't funny is astounding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even more radical was her attack on the belief that drama was meant to have a moral teaching at its heart. Mm, okay. Mm. She believed that a good play was worth more than scholarship and plays had done less harm than sermons. <laughs> well, she's probably not wrong. Correct. <laughs> uh, perhaps the strangest charge thrown at her was that her play Sir Patient Fancy was... What is it called? Sir Patient Fancy. <laughs> okay. It was a uh, body. That was the... It was too body. She defended herself by pointing out that such a charge would never be made against a man. Because no. that's the whole point of restoration comedy. They're all body. All of them. Yeah. Every but single one. It's but unfeminine. For her to be the one writing it. Uh, she also stated that body was more excusable for an author that wrote to support herself as opposed to one that writes only for fame. So I guess mm. the only the other female authors at the time were, they're like, well, look at them. They're writing things that aren't as body. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, but they they don't need money. I do. So I need something that's going to be popular with audiences. So fuck you. I'm going to keep writing this stuff because yeah. people love it. They come and see it. They pay to see it. And they go see male authored plays that are the same. And you don't accuse them of that. Oh, because men are allowed to be body because men are allowed to have sex. Great. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, She had to fight the perception, obviously, that it wasn't a woman's place to write for money. In the preface to one of her plays, she wrote, quote, the play had no other misfortune but that of coming out for a woman's. Had it been owned by a man, though the most dull, unthinking, rascally scribbler in town, it had been a most admirable play. Oh, boy. 
She's like, she takes no shit. And she should not. I mean, thank God she didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Because if she'd been scared off, like if she'd let them scare her off, then she would be back in a fucking debtor's prison. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you. What is she supposed to do? She's unmarried. Like, uh, she clearly doesn't want to be married. She doesn't care to be. Yeah, this she's is... Not, she's like, I want to work. <laughs> and she's doing this and doing it well and making money. And, like, if all that's happened... If the only negative thing that's happening is that some dudes are like, meh, then she should just keep doing it and keep saying, go fuck, go fuck yourself to all the people who are saying, meh. Right. Afra Ben's outspoken tendencies and loyalty to the Stewart family was what wound up causing a hiatus in her career. Uh-oh, politics. Yep. Especially when theater is uh, funded by aristocrats. Yep. In 1682, she was arrested for her attack on the illegitimate son of Charles II, the Duke of Monmouth. Physical attack? No. Oh, okay. In an epilogue to her play, Romulus and Hercilia, she wrote about her fear of the threat that the Duke posed to succession. Ooh. The king punished not only Afroben, but also the actress that read the epilogue. After this, her productivity and demand as a playwright declined sharply, and she once again had to find a new source of income. So she turned to other types of writing. I thought you were going to say other types of work. (laughs) No. Uh, Including poetry. Poetry! She's a poet, too. (sighs) Her poetry explores the theme she most enjoyed, the intertwining of sexual and political power. Most of her poetry is about desire. Homoeroticism is standard in Ben's verse, either in descriptions such as these of male-to-male relationships or in depictions of her own attractions to women. Alrighty. Uh-huh. Her verse explores female desire for male and female lovers, male impotence from a female perspective, and imagining a time when no law curbed sexual freedom. Damn. It's very ballsy. Over easy? <laughs> Over easy? <laughs> Eggs over easy. Oh, no. Uh, Gutsy? That's better. There we go. Boom, boom, boom. Look at this coded language (laughs) that we have embedded in our system. Anyway, at times, her poetry seems to play with the conventions of romantic friendship and the possibility of going beyond it. (laughs) Ben's contemporary reputation as a poet was no less stunning than her notoriety as a dramatist. She was heralded as a successor to Sappho, inheriting the great gifts of the Greek poet in the best English tradition. She was even known by her pastoral nom de plume, the incomparable Astria, based on the code name she had used when she was a spy. Now, were her did her plays explore these themes or was it just was it like something she started to touch on, but I don't think you could show that shit on stage. Oh yeah, that's a fair point. Mhm. But you can write about mm. it in poetry. Yeah. Much more easily. That's interesting. Because in, you know, the idea of it versus like the actual presentation of it. Right. You can insinuate a lot. Because it's illegal. Yes. Homosexuality is illegal at this time, which is I think what they're saying about like imagining a time when no law curbed sexual freedom. Right. Um that's her distinctive poetic voice is characterized by her uh, audacity in writing about contemporary events. Frequently with topical references that, despite their allegorical maskings, were immediately recognizable to her sophisticated audience. Although she sometimes addressed her friends by their initials or their familiar names, she might as easily employ some classical or pastoral disguise that was transparent to the initiated. 
Such poetic technique involved a skill and a craft that earned her the compliments of her cohorts as one who, despite her female form, had a male intelligence and masculine powers of reason. What a compliment. Ooh, thank you so much. I'm smart like a man. (laughs) I'm logical. Thank you. Oh, like a man. Oh, my God. Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, Her best known poem, The Disappointment finally illustrates her ability to portray scandalous material in an acceptable form. It has been traditionally interpreted to be about impotence, but it's also about rape, another kind of potency test, and presents a woman's point of view cloaked in the customary language of male physical license and sexual access to women. The woman's perspective in this poem provides the double vision that plays the conventional against the experiential. Okay. So, like, the, the, there was a, a really long like interpretation of that poem afterwards but it's basically about a man who like stumbles across a woman in the forest and then he like kisses her and she accepts the kiss and then he tries to take it further and she says no and then he tries and then she passes out and so and then he's like i'm gonna continue um but he can't get it up ha and it she like wakes up and he has his dick in his hand but it's not hard and then she runs away there's a lot more to it Interesting. But it's like, but people, it's fascinating because it's like, it's talking about all these themes <laughs> that are really relevant even today, <laughs> like about consent and shit. But yeah, but it must have been interpreted differently back then than it would be today. I'm to a degree, yeah. at least. I would be so curious to hear like what, what somebody back then reading that poem. But it's called The Disappointment. Which is so coded. Like, what yeah. part of that is the the disappointment? Yeah. Yeah. Is it poking fun? Is it from his perspective? Is his dick not getting up the disappointment? Is the, the not fulfilled sexual act the disappointment? Or is she disappointed in his behavior? Or yeah. Anyway. Wow. In her poems, Ben uses the dramatic qualities of voice which gave her such great stage success. Her verses are always spoken by a specific, identifiable individual whose self-characterization becomes clear immediately in the text. You like Afro-Ben, Kitty? Or do you just want pumpkin water? Uh, (laughs) The effect of this characterization and technique is to give the poems a sense of immediacy and energy that reveals her personality through her works. Maybe. Yeah. She almost always speaks from the point of view of a woman, and her attitudes convey a woman's confidence in dealing with men's amorous advances and betrayals. In other words, she gets around. I guess a little bit. She's uh, she has some experience. Notoriously bisexual, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. gets around with men and women. One of I was reading one of like her um, public romantic relationships. I put all of this in air quotes. Um, was with a man who was very publicly noted to be gay. Oh. Because he was really scandalous because he was always, like, I wonder if they were just in a a sexually platonic, but. Yeah. But romantic. I don't know. But, like, she was, like, later in her life was with him and people were like, what? That's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think that happened, must have happened a lot back then, a lot more back then, where people would have, like, platonic friendships or, I guess, like, 
sexless, you know, relationships almost mm-hmm. with their friends, with like female friends and male friends. And they would live together for years and years and, yeah. you know, like uh, do everything together and, and be together in a lot of senses, but not all senses. I mean, and how convenient and wonderful is it like when you get the opportunity, <laughs> like if you could be this open with somebody, like if you happen to be gay, but in a time where it was not legal or acceptable and you married someone else who is gay so that you guys could have that facade but also share your money and share your lives but then go out and have your fucking gay sex all the time with whoever you wanted yeah i don't know and be friends at home postulating yeah life partners without sex yeah maybe sometimes if you're queer enough who knows (laughs) humans are very uh gray creatures eventually afroban moved on to writing fiction okay uh, her first effort was called Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is not as gross as it sounds. Uh, it's okay. based loosely on the real scandal involving Lord Grey, a member of Whig, Whig nobility, who had married the daughter of the Lord of Berkeley, but later eloped with uh, another daughter of the Lord of Berkeley. So his sister-in-law. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say that is a very on-the-nose title, uh, but maybe not as on-the-nose. Um, she was able to pass off this work as true, which is a testament to her skills as a writer. The novel shows her developing ambivalence toward authority and its conflict with individual freedom. I don't know why. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know enough about this book. Yeah, Love enough. Letters was influential on the genre of erotic fiction, but Ooh. also contributed to the more severe moral climate of the coming 18th century. Fascinating. Because mm-hmm. this was a very loose time. Mm-hmm. Could include yeah. morally, and then it went to very like we just swing back and forth constantly. Yep. Um, her most famous and perhaps most important piece of fiction um, was a book called Orinoco. It was written in 1688, and uh, it is believed to refer to events from her youth in Suriname. It's a vivid portrait of colonial life in South America and its brutal treatment of the native populations. In the novel, Ben continues her experimentation with the first-person narrative and circumstantial realism. The complexity of the novel makes her an important forerunner not just to later women storytellers, but also the first writers of English novels. Okay. Uh, At one time thought to be a sharp condemnation of the slave trade, Orinoco is now more accurately read as an elemental conflict between goodness and the evil brought by greed and corruption of power. Aha! Uh, While the central character is not necessarily uh, within the quote-unquote noble savage trope, the main character is uh, an indigenous person or or a, I think he's actually a slave who was brought over maybe. Oh, Um, from like Africa, presumably. Okay. Um, But he, so, which is interesting that you make your protagonist that in that time yeah uh but he so he doesn't necessarily fall into the quote-unquote noble savage trope he's often cited as the prototype for that figure yeah he uh apparently actually embodies what are the highest values of western society and it's meant to show how the people in charge who should embody those same values are vicious hypocritical murderers whoa yeah Whoa. Sounds interesting, right? I'm sure the language yeah. is very dense, though, because a lot of novels from that time period oh, are kind God. of hard to read from for our time. <laughs> There's no way. But anyway, uh, and more interestingly, the novel shows uh, Afroban's continuing ambivalence toward her loyalty to Charles II and then James II. Uh-oh. Beep boop. Uh, 
sadly, in the late 1680s, uh, her health began to rapidly decline. And because she was, uh, she like blew through all her money. And so like when you're unhealthy and you have no money, it becomes very difficult to take care of yourself. So she, I couldn't figure out exactly what she died of, but she died in pain and in poverty. Oh God. On your birthday in 1689, April 16th. Oh man. Um. So she was roughly in her late 40s or early 50s, depending, since we don't know exactly oh, when she was born. God. Um, so relatively young, but I guess for that time period, it's probably pretty normal. For that time, yeah. I would say so. <laughs> uh, in the following decades, despite her massive fame, she was scorned by critics. Of course. Who found her writing too smutty and scandalous for a woman. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, her notoriety survived into the 19th century as both, both an example and a warning. She was dismissed as a hack by critics and called outrageous for her frank treatment of sex and relationships. Later, in 1865, a scholar at the time said, quote, she might have been an honor to womanhood, but she was its disgrace. She might have gained glory by her labors, and she chose to reap infamy. Okay, so she was talented, and she chose to use her talents for, you know. Smut. Smut. Basically. And of course, she's not there to defend herself with her very intelligent words the way she could before. So they just fucking pile on her. Yep. Great. Um, she was buried in Westminster Abbey, um, not in the poet's corner, oh. but outside in the corridor. Time and wear have almost erased the two lines of verse carved in her stone as an epitaph. So she wrote it. And her epitaph says, here lies a proof that wit can never be defense against mortality. Whoa. Mm hmm. Oh, that just gave me, me gave too. Me some shivers. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, the location of her burial speaks to the response of her age and to her achievements and character. Her body rests in the most hallowed place in England, but outside the company of the most admired geniuses. Lesser writers than she, some contemporaries of hers, and all of them male, are buried in the famous corner next to such greats as Chaucer and Milton. Whoa. Um... In her time, she was celebrated, obviously, for her wit and warm temperament. Her status as a professional author was a scandal. By making a living through writing, she challenged what was considered proper for her gender and was criticized for being unladylike. She showed great resilience and resourcefulness, relying on her wit and energy when defending herself against such criticism. For many years, it appeared that Aphrodite would be lost to the ages. Several of her novels were appreciated throughout the 18th century, but obviously in the early 19th century, she was little heard of and almost never read. The Victorians, who did know of her, condemned her frivolousness and obscenity. Many accused her of impurity. And when a collection of her works was published in 1871, the publisher was attacked by the press, who found Ben to be too corrupt, vile, and polluting to be enduring. Good God. By the end of the 19th century, though, so at the very end of the sort of Victorian era, 200 years after her death, Ben's success finally started to be uh, earning her praise again, this time from Virginia Woolf. Quote, quote, all women, uh, all women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afro Ben, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their mind. Oh, More and more scholars return to her works. I have goosebumps again. More and more scholars return to her works, seeing in them the beginnings of feminism. Not something necessarily she intended, I wouldn't think. 
As one scholar notes, quote, in their ironic treatment of female chastity and masculine constancy, her comedies present a sophisticated and sympathetic understanding of the ideological complexities of women's existence in a misogynistic society. So mm-hmm. Afroben is finally being recognized as an important early writer in both women's history and the history of literature. <laughs> yes. She is being appreciated as a noteworthy contributor to the beginnings of the novel as a new literary form. And while her name isn't as recognizable as Shakespeare, Chaucer, or other English male writers, her work laid the foundation for women whose names are recognized, like Virginia Woolf herself. Thank God. Yay! And they were massively popular at the time. She was the most produced other than one person. Which Playwright. Is, that's an important thing to note, because it's not just like someone discovered her plays and she's always been obscure, and now after death she's finding you know, uh, that recognition again. Like, she yeah, it's was not like popular. Yeah. People fucking loved her shit. She was really famous and made a living writing plays and poetry and novels. <laughs> do you want some on this day? <laughs> I do. Okay. I do. So I believe, I didn't even write down what day. I'm pretty sure it's January 16th today yeah. that this episode is dropping. Yeah. Which is officially uh, three months to your birthday. Oh, yeah. And eight months to mine. Oh, my God. I don't even I never even think about those things. But yes, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, So on this day, January 16th, 27 B.C. Woo. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus is granted the title Augustus by the Roman Senate, marking the beginning of the Roman Empire. Whoa. 27 B.C. Okay, January 16th, 1707. The Scottish Parliament ratifies the Act of Union, paving the way for the creation of Great Britain, which is a very uh, tumultuous thing. Just after Afro Ben's time. Yeah, what did you say? 1707? 1707, because obviously in the 1760s, it's like the Scottish uprising and Mm -hmm. the Stuart family. Stuart. Stuart, uh, who also, fucking Prince Stuart or whatever the fuck, but the Bonnie Prince, he tried to, he was raised in France too. And was not exactly the most talented of rulers. He died before he could become king, right? I don't remember. Uh, What's Outlander taught me? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that Jamie and What's-Her-Face love each other very Claire. much? That's the one. And yes. <laughs> we all know I'm not a romantic, okay? We did talk about that this morning yeah. over breakfast. Um, January 16th, 1942. Crash of TWA Flight 3, killing all 22 people aboard, including film star Carol Lombard. Whoa. What year? 1942. Oh, man. Yeah. She was flying. She was going from New York to Burbank, but there was obviously lots of stops at that time. So, oh, But yeah. it was the, the final leg from Las Vegas to Burbank, and it was nighttime. And there was a lot of the lights in the safety towers and stuff were off because of the war effort to, like, save money. Oh, and, and shit. the pilot decided to veer a couple miles off course and they crashed into the side of a mountain. <gasps> Holy fuck. So safety lights are important and also following the path that you're supposed to fly on and flying over mountains. And flying over mountains. There's a reason the paths are the way they are. Uh. Clark, and Carol Lombard was married to uh, Clark Gable at the time. Wow. Anyway. Jesus Christ. I thought that was interesting. Um, January 16th, 1964, Hello, Dolly opened on Broadway. Oh. 
which is it's now open again the revival i think it's still running i could be wrong no idea but bet midler was in it and crazy it's a- hello dolly yes hello okay back to be nice where you belong january 16th 19th we're getting back into the swing of this january 16th 1979 the last iranian shah flees iran with his family for good and relocates to egypt oh shit oh boy yep uh 1992 el salvador officials and rebel leaders signed the chapultepec peace accords in mexico city Ending the 12-year Salvadorian Salvadoran civil war that claimed at least 75,000 lives. Whoa. 1992. Jesus. That was in our lifetime. God, yeah. January 16th, 2006, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is sworn in as Liberia's new president. She becomes Africa's first female elected head of state. Whoa. 2006? Mm-hmm. God, even, even fucking Liberia is ahead of... The curve. For electing women Mm -hmm. to run their country? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is. Everyone is. And I love all the people who are like, America's not ready. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? That's It's like me saying I'm not ready for a kid. But if you handed me a kid that I was stuck with, I'd figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because I'm definitely not ready for a kid. But like, if someone, if I inherited, I have a goddaughter. If I had to inherit her, God forbid. Did you just cross yourself? I did, because she was, I, her, yeah. I don't want that to happen. (laughs) January 16th, 1908, Ethel Merman was born. What year? 1908. Oh. Ethel Zimmerman is how she was born. Okay, and who is she? You know who Ethel Merman is. Are you wanting me to explain it? Yeah. She's a famous actress. What was she in? A lot of things. (laughs) Oh, all right. Hello, Ethel Merman. Like, she's very famous. And you know why she changed her name from Zimmerman to Merman? No. Because Zimmerman is too big to put up in lights. It was too long for marquees at the time. Oh, tricky. So, Ethel Merman. I like that. Uh, January 16th, 1979, Aaliyah was born. Oh. Speaking of people who died in plane crashes, wow. Jesus, yeah. Weird. Uh-huh. I just thought that was relevant because that R. Kelly documentary docuseries just came out. Yeah. Which sounds insane. And yeah. I don't know if I, I'm like ready to. I've already. You don't have to convince me that R. Kelly is a piece of shit. Um, so yeah. I, I'm already on board. But they had to convince somebody because. They still have to convince a lot of people. Only just now. Only once that came out did um, investigators or whatever start actually investigating looking into it. his like sex cult and yes. how he keeps women literally imprisoned yep yeah what? which there have been articles and about how it he for years children because he's a pedophile it's yeah he's fucking disgusting yep aj nothing but a number fuck mm. you he married Aaliyah when she was 15 Bleh. gross Bleh. anyway rest in peace Aaliyah, because she was wonderful artist and great vampire queen the best vampire um, this one's great. January 16th, 1980. Happy birthday, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Aww. <laughs> American actor, playwright, and composer. And general. Hot shit right now. Human being. Mm-hmm. Who lives in New York City. Very much in demand these days. Yeah. $500,000 per song. 
that he writes nowadays. Oh. He was also delightful in Mary Poppins. Oh, which I didn't see. It was a very cute movie. I really, I, I had a good time to watch, and I cried like three times. <laughs> but I cry all the time now. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I love that you can do that in a movie that you're just like, it was very cute, and I liked it. And also, I cried multiple times. What are you excited about this week, Hannah? Um, I'm excited about, well, just generally, I'm excited about the new year because, A, I'm just glad to be Clean out slate. of 2018. Thank God. Because 2018 was a very up and down year, I think, oh, for God, everybody. Yeah. I mean, politically, obviously, but like also just professionally, it was very up and down. Like I had some really great sales, but I also just like career wise felt a little bit stagnant. Mm. And I think this year, according to my astrological chart, is going to be better for career things. Um, and <coughs> and I think that that's true. I'm already sort of getting... I'm getting that feeling. Um, ben and I have been working on uh, a project, a film project that we are going to hopefully be Yay. Um, producing in the summer, which is very exciting. Woohoo! But yeah, so it's good stuff. And also, <laughs> I'm excited for the new year because it means that I am sort of con marrying uh, everything and if you oh, have watched oh. tidying up or if you've read, read the art of Marie Kondo's up. book then you'll know yeah so like getting rid of shit that quote does not spark joy in your life um is is a concept that I want to I want to bring into my life like going forward like not just now as I'm tidying up my apartment but also like you know I want to bring it into the concept of when I am at the store and buying shit and like tempted to tempted to buy a bunch of crap like is it something that sparks joy like is it something that I really actually will bring into my future and use Hmm. and if not I just think it's kind of pretty then like I'm not you know I don't want to I don't want to be tempted to do that and so I'm excited to start implementing that, and I already have because we are obviously at the 16th at this point. So, so I'm just excited to be implementing some All things these fresh in the new year. Things, yeah. All right, yeah, man. That's cool. Thanks. I hope that that was interesting. I know it was kind of a long one. I I found it very interesting. Hopefully, you a did writer, too, dear so. listener. Yeah. Well, that's, I thought you'd like it. Yeah. I did. I, I appreciated it a little it. bit to both of our sensibilities because you are theater minded and film minded and shit, and also just writing the novels. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. All Thanks right. for pandering. Uh, go find us on social media. We All are of them. we are at GWBB Podcast on, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, at gmail at gmail.com if you want to email if you want to email us email us say hi email us about badass women in your life email us corrections we love you and we we are pretty soon here gonna reach our one year mark that we started this podcast yeah man which is wild yeah keep your eyes out for a birthday themed episode An anniversary maybe. birthday in february the born day of good witches bad bitches and we've come a long way and we're gonna keep growing and we're so excited to have you with us on this journey thank you so much peace out witches we'll see you next week bye 
Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, mm-hmm. all of that. It's great. Yes. And you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same. And we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBpodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, guys. You know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, The link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See see how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our (laughs) Ko-Fi. So that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, Coffee start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pinecast. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.